Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. This evening, I'm sat with Luca Vukatic, Development Director at Art Invest Real Estate. Luca is someone who's experienced a meteoric rise in his career and personal development, working for several of the biggest and most highly regarded institutions in the UK market. Arup, Lendlease, Argent, before joining German powerhouse Art Invest on their first foray into London major projects. If you aren't immediately familiar with Art Invest, they've recently completed one of the largest and fastest planning permissions of 2022, the one and a half million square foot development at Canada Water. So Luca, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Nick. So let's get started, shall we? How does chapter one begin? I'd actually like to start with a bit of preface um, before chapter one, because I think uh, a lot of us are actually shaped by some of the experiences we have uh, in our early childhood. Um, and I think that's certainly the case for me. So if I may, I'll just uh, maybe spend the first couple of minutes just explaining uh, a bit of that and how that's actually shaped my uh, thinking and career thus far. So firstly, I was raised in a family of medical workers. My father was a surgeon, my mom was a nurse. Um, and the early part of my life, I was exposed to really good work that my parents did to mainly serve the community and be a very good listeners to those that are in need in order to help them. And also living in Belgrade or in Yugoslavia at the time, um, I actually started to learn that there are two currencies. One is obviously the money and the other one is really the respect based on the work that you do. So that kind of stuck with me for the rest of my career thus far. And doing something positive and leaving legacy uh, is really a key driver in everything I do later in my life from that point on. The second uh, bit that's really important um, in, in my kind of early early days and forming as, as, um, as a professional, I think, is um, sports. So... Again, where I grew up, a lot of kids did sport. Um, I spent uh, four years playing handball, uh, which is not a well-known sport in the UK, but uh, it is on the continent. Uh, and despite my tenacity, uh, I was not very good at eyeball coordination, uh, but I had a very good fitness, so I was really persistent. Um, I somehow decided uh, to start rowing, uh, probably because I thought it only requires fitness and persistence. So... Um, I was probably right, uh, and I, but I think most things do. Uh, I think most things we do in life are all about, you know, just being persistent. So rowing definitely shaped my personality and defined how I approached all future challenges uh, that I faced through both my education and career. And really the final part that I think is really important in my uh, kind of formation was... Um, the educational experiences I had, both my early education, uh, but also my experiences in the US where I did my undergraduate degree uh, in civil engineering later in the UK, where I did uh, two master's degrees, the first one being in engineering for sustainable development, a topic that's still very raw, but I did that a while ago. But I think what was interesting during those times is that I didn't only learn about the subjects that I studied, which were all kind of interesting and complex and so on. Uh, but more importantly, I started to kind of realize that if I surrounded myself with exceptional people, I was lucky enough to have that, I kept pushing myself to do better and better. So I continued to see these great people that surround me as almost, I described as uh, pace setters that I follow for a while. We all run our own race, essentially. So each one of us will have a, you know, our own career paths and our own lives. 
But I think every stage of that race, it's good to actually find, um, you know, strong peers or, or even mentors that actually set the pace for you to uh, make sure that you deliver your best kind of split time for each segment of your career. Uh, so you'll see quite a bit of a sports analogy in, in, in our conversation because I think it's definitely something that's been really important. So if I was to summarize this preface, I think, um, you know, there are essentially three key concepts that I think, you know, I keep using to address all the professional challenges I face. And if I start in the reverse order, the first one is really surrounding yourself with exceptional people that you can learn from and, and they drive you, always giving you 100% and your best. And, and finally, you know, having a purpose and being a very good listener. I think we as, as developers in particular uh, and investors, we, we have significant impact on wider society and listening to what people need is, is really key. So I think that is probably... Uh, the kind of the preface and hopefully sets the scene for um, for what we're going to talk about in terms of you know various careers career moves I made before I got to where I'm now. So look before we move on then sticking with the with what you described as, as this preface I wanted to ask you a question about your education because you know, I, I drew attention in the introduction to the quality of the employers you've chosen to work for and that rule is still also true about the places you chose to get your education, i.e. Columbia and Cambridge. So before we move on, do you want to briefly just tell me a little bit in terms of, sort of how you chose the organisations and and how and maybe sort of what you were hoping to get from these in regards to those very early chapters of that, of that career? No, absolutely. So I was really fortunate as an 18-year-old to um, have, you know, done well in rowing, but also I've done really well at school and a real opportunity to actually... Um, basically go to Columbia University to my undergraduate degree. I had the, the four most formative years of my life and obviously um, b- becoming a real uh, grown-up, uh, being on my own, being in an English-speaking country for the first time in my life and you know, meeting a lot of friends, as I said before, who were uh, a real pace setters and, and really allowed me to g- give my best. And then during my last year at Columbia, I worked with a professor uh, who was actually an English professor, and um, and she recommended to me that there was this great course in engineering and sustainable development at Cambridge University. At the t- at the time, sustainability was a relatively new topic, but I got quite close to um, working on some research projects uh, with that professor, and I got quite intrigued about that. It was it was almost like two options. One is consider maybe an MBA after a couple of years of working, or do something like this. So I quite liked the idea and I ended up, again, being lucky enough to get accepted to Cambridge. And I did um, a year of very kind of intense studies and um, and actually did a really interesting dissertation uh, back in the day talking about embodied carbon was uh, a fairly kind of um, random thing to, to say to people. I think a lot of people didn't even know what it meant. But back in 2008, I wrote a, a dissertation which was in collaboration with um, Ramble Whitby Bird at the time, and um, and that work got published a year or two later with the IC, and that was really where you know I started thinking about what do I want to do next with my career. It was certainly something to do with engineering and sustainable development. So that's really where the first chapter starts uh, with me joining um, joining Arup. Well, then let, don't let me slow you down. Let's get on with the um, and tell me a bit more about what those early days were like with Arup. No, absolutely. So 
Essentially, I joined the, um, the engineering sustainability team, which I think was relatively new at the time. It probably wasn't more than, I would say, two or three years uh, running because previously uh, Arup had uh, building engineering groups, but they're mainly focused on you know, structural or MEP and so on. This was almost like a, like a little think tank within Arup, and uh, they had some exceptional individuals, again, Grace, great pace setters, and I joined that team as, as a young graduate and uh, spent the first two or three years at Arup uh, sustainability team. Uh, it was really interesting at that, that time, uh, there wasn't really a large kind of a, a long-term project I was involved with to say, you know, I spent a year or two working on, you know, a, a project of a scale of, I don't know, a cheese grater or something like that, or Lenahall. I actually worked on a lot of smaller uh, projects or supported some of the larger projects with defined piece of work but that really allowed me to learn you know in depth uh, um, this whole issue that was starting to become more and more relevant on sustainability but I got to a point where after about two or three years I felt I really want to be a chartered engineer I really want to make sure that I also can design and, and, and deliver engineering projects so I was really fortunate at the time that um, my boss at the time, Jeremy Edwards, decided to take me on and uh, I worked in his group for another two or three years and uh, I worked on a lot of projects with uh, Stanhope and Derwent, which are great clients and uh, Jeremy was kind enough to allow me to go into meetings with those clients early days, which was uh, really helpful because first of all, you start to kind of grow professionally by being present in those meetings. But secondly, uh, you know, my inquisitive brain was immediately starting to think about, well, why have they made that decision? What happens behind the closed doors? Because obviously I was talking about the, the bit that I was doing, which was relatively, um, let's say, limited on structural engineering, still quite exciting, uh, and bringing some new ideas on using CLT and reducing body carbon and so on. But I didn't really appreciate how all these various decisions were made. So that's that's where you know I started thinking slowly about, wouldn't it be great to... Um, be a decision maker, the ultimate decision maker, and, and how would it be to work for uh, one of these organizations like those companies that I was exposed to early days? Just, I'm, I'm curious if you could answer a quick question for me, Lucas. Our audience who listens to this are, are made up of individuals from all areas of real estate and, and construction. So they'll, have, they'll probably have their own experience of what it's like to be in so these multidisciplinary sort of design teams assembled by individual clients like the Derwents, the Stanhopes. What was your experience as, a, as an engineer from, from Arup? Was that unique or did you feel like with each and every one of the individuals that you might be involved in from their different sort of format or different sort of backgrounds within those, within those sort of multidisciplinary teams, did you think your experience is all very similar? Well, I, I think what's really nice about us as developers, I think they're all fairly unique and, and they're driven by the individual that's running the team. So I think that the overall quality of engagement and, and what was being produced by those organizations was really high level. But I think that the actual experience of being part of the team was was different because I think they all bring a bit of you know their in, individual kind of... Um, aspect to it. But I think what was really obvious is that the overall quality was really strong. And you, you could tell when, you know, something has been done by one of these great organizations, regardless of, you know, who was leading the actual project. So I, I think that's probably a fair answer to say that, that, you know, that there is quality, but there is also individualism in, in, in how this is delivered. 
So Luca, just if um, just then taking a moment then to reflect back, you've got this phenomenal sort of education behind you. You've got this great foundation working the business like like Arab and being exposed to some of the very best of the developers out, out there. That inevitably has got to have created a, a real sort of acceleration and sort of a a real steep learning curve. But I know from experience these these aren't infinite. They have a they have a habit of slowing and the pace of that often means that our guests go looking to create a spark or a catalyst to change that. At what point do you think you started to feel that that and and what was that? I think that's I think you're absolutely right about that. I I probably, you know, got to um, you know, that chartership level and uh, I felt like I was able to operate very comfortably in the design space if you call it that way. And really what sparked the, the kind of the thinking, and I never actually made the decision, and typically happens like that. There, there are pull factors that pull you out, but they happen typically when you're ready to move. And, uh, and for me, I was getting to a point where there's some des- design decisions that uh, were, were influenced by the work I did, which I thought would tick all the boxes of you know, great engineering design, uh, hitting all the sustainability credentials, even though they're not as high on the agenda Back in the day, they're still important, uh, and yet, even though the, even though these decisions were considered, they wouldn't really be um, taken on board as as the final solution. There was always something else that kind of got in a way, like the agent's advice or uh, the cost consultant's advice. And that was the bit where I thought, well, if I could only be on the decision making side of things, I could hopefully uh, make the what I thought at the time was the right decision. I mean. Looking back now, probably the decision that was made uh, that frustrated me a little bit was a uh, decision I would have made. Uh, but I think it was it was enough to actually get me thinking, oh, what if I was there? You know, how would I react and how would I make a decision thinking I would do it differently? Uh, so that was really the, the bit where I started kind of, you know, mentally engage a bit more with, with that process. And it was a time where, you know, it so happened that I had a call from... Um, Lendlease, I think it was an internal uh, recruitment person from Lendlease, who asked me, um, would, you, uh, would you like to join our team at Elephant and Castle? We're looking for somebody with a really strong technical experience to join the team. And, and I thought about it. And I said, uh, yes, but only if uh, I can have a double role where I work as a kind of assistant development manager to um, gain a bit of experience, because that's really what I'm interested in. I, I didn't want to go and become... A technical person on the client side, so we we've agreed that I can join the team. I can be the technical lead, uh, supporting the the client side. So land lease at Elephant Castle, but I also had the opportunity to um, kind of help and um, and lead one of the early development phases of uh, Elephant Castle, which was H three. I'm really proud because the the building that I looked after was shortlisted this year for. Um, uh, Sterling Prize, unfortunately didn't win it, but it's still a great project. It was designed by partner Hunter Hudspeth. And that was really the, the kind of the segue into um, into development world and the client side. So that's our spark and our catalyst. How did it pan out? Um, did you get everything you wanted from it? I think I got everything I wanted from it and probably more, but it didn't last for very long. And I think it was really interesting because I think it was absolutely the right move to make at the time to kind of, you know, to grab that spark and, and, and to actually be excited about the role. I think I was just slightly, I would say unfortunate that the person that hired me into um, 
into land lease and also the, the person who was leading Elephant Castle project at the time both left within six to nine months of me joining. And going back to the pace setter analogy I gave earlier, I felt like this, this segment of, of, of the career kind of race was going to be quite complicated because I wasn't sure who the pace setter was and where I was really heading. So I think it was more like, you know, starting to run in circles because it's a large, it's a great organization. I learned a lot from it. But I think I was just at that point in my career where I felt I really need a bit of guidance. I just joined a new kind of um, business and a new kind of environment. And the, the people that I, you know, followed uh, have um, have decided to make a move of, of their own. And, and I felt slightly lost at the time. So um, again, as, as it happens, I think uh, that's the time when uh, you and I met. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it, I think it probably was. The bit, the bit I wanted to go back to, because I think this is a really important lesson for anyone listening to this, because up to this point, you've, you've had a very, very stable career. You know, you've, you've started up with Arup, you've spent five years there, you've gone through the gears very, very quickly, learning phase, then consolidation, then looking for this spark. And on the face of it, it looks, it looks exactly the role that you wanted for and was going to give you that, that new platform. But for whatever reason, if, if it hadn't, it's easy at that point then, I imagine, then to think that you've got major problems in, in that career because suddenly you either have to stick it out or maybe make a make a, a second move. And, and actually, the lesson I think I want, I want people here listening to this is that I don't think there is such a thing as a bad move because all you need to be able to do is make sure that you learn the most from that. And that then, that period will be a very successful catalyst or spark then for a new learning experience. And once more, you're going back through the gears and that's how these very successful careers are built. Going through these periods of acceleration, then consolidation, then spark you know, as, as, as quickly, uh, but as fully as possible. So let's, let's move on then. So what, what happens then post-Lendlease? So um, I was really fortunate again to... Um basically have an opportunity to uh, join Argent. I already actually lived at King's Cross, so I was fully aware of all the great work that was happening there. Um, there wasn't a lot when I moved there. I moved there in 2012, so there are not many uh, many buildings around. There was a lot of construction happening at the time, but just the vision and, and obviously the location of it uh, was was exceptional. And um, and I basically, given, given the situation at Lendlease and, and feeling that I've, I've done, you know, amazing work there and I really enjoyed the time but feeling that actually I probably need something a bit more tailored for my career and, and finding a few more of these pace setters that I can work with on, on the next stage of my career I felt that Arjun was absolutely the right place and I think that was definitely the case I had a, a really really good time at Argent. it was obviously um, an early early phase of King's Cross I think you know you could say that the early phases were 2008 but I, as I say there was still you know, there was some construction activity, but not much of it was built. So I was really fortunate that I was there probably at the at the peak construction times when I think we're spending something in the order of over a million pounds a day in construction. Uh, so that was that was brilliant. And I was really exposed. I was really fortunate because I was exposed to people like Robert Evans was the partner I worked with, uh, but I sat next to Roger Madeline and across from Tony Giddings. So those are all um, really exceptional people and having an opportunity to be so close to, to those people and, and interact with them on a daily basis really allowed me to, um, to kind of find another gear in my career and it was definitely the right, the right move on from, from Lendlease. 
So if I can jump in now, Luca, you know, you use the, the sporting analogy at the very, very start. And if I can borrow it now, the very best sportsmen don't simply set themselves to goals targets to get faster or to or to score more points or to score more goals. They break down their craft, don't they, into tiny, small, bite-sized chunks and make small incremental improvements into every one of one of those. So if we use your career now as in in the same way, what part of your craft do you think you were particularly honing at this stage with Argent? I think at the time, I didn't quite understand what the, the full development cycle was. Uh, I see that very differently now. But when I joined Argent, I felt like I was definitely doing the full development cycle, even though I wasn't, because obviously the way Argent works is, you know, th- there's some larger projects that they secure, and then there is 15 to 20 years of, of work around those projects to make them really successful. But I think it was really good to focus on the, that part of the development cycle, which starts from essentially assuming that there is an acquisition team, an investment team, you know, that secure the site, and it's passed on to you as a, as a development manager to, um, uh, to, to see it through. And, and that's really, so I started, you know, gaining experience through submitting planning application for um, H3 at Elephant Castle. So I've, done, I've been through uh, that kind of cycle once up to planning. But what I really was able to do at, at Argent is, is, is see much more of that part of the cycle of development and, and do it a few times and do it with exceptional people. And I think that was, that was really positive and really uh, important stage of my career where I felt I really accelerated. So we keep, again, we keep sort of, uh, and it's probably from, you know, for someone who's not very sporty, I keep murdering all these sort of sporting analogies, but keeping up with pace, what pace do you think your career was at now, now you're Argent on a scheme like King's Cross? I think I was picking up a lot of pace. Um, and I, uh, I actually, when I, when I left Argent and I, uh, I was reflecting on it, I actually um, looked at the projects that I was involved with over the, over the five years there. And, uh, and I really started with um, a Gasholders marketing suite, which was a, a circa three and a half million project. And then I picked up a Q2 Sports Hall, which is about a 10 million project. Um, and then picked up S5, which is a 100 million project in, in about year four. So being a, a, a bit of an engineering brain, I started to see the, the correlation between the, the, the kind of the cost of the project to the number of years I spent there. And there was actually quite a nice exponential graph I could fit being uh, 3.5 or 3.15 to the power of X and power of X being the number of years I spent there. So, um, so essentially year one, 3.15 million, year two, 10 million and year four, hundred million project. So essentially I was really able to gain that exponential growth in my career. And it's not all about uh, obviously the project cost, uh, but that does reflect an element of uh, responsibility that you're gaining and the trust that the, the people around you are um, giving you. So I think that was a, that was a really fast pace, and it was a great environment to achieve exactly that. Well, I think that's one an excellent sort of advert for careers at Argent for giving someone that the ability to in order to achieve that. But it's it's also an incredible achievement on on your side as as the individual as well to be able to to warrant the trust and sort of in many ways to sort of take up the responsibility to be able to deliver on on those as well. 
But times, as we all know, sort of now sat here doing this interview, you're no longer at Argent. So a change is afoot. Tell us a little bit more about why you went looking for for that change what was what was the motivator to to want to now to to uh to take up something new again i wasn't really you know actively looking for new roles at the time but i think similarly to the point i reached at arup is i felt i was get, getting fairly comfortable doing this kind of part of development from you know taking taking the site that somebody's basically bought and and pushed that through um design and, uh, and in, into construction. And, and I think mentally I was starting to get ready to do a bit more and actually see that full development cycle, which does include, you know, finding the opportunities and, um, and securing funding and, and, and everything goes with it. So, so there was a, again, uh, there was an opportunity. I was introduced to Ali Abbas, who at the time was considering setting up uh, a business in the UK uh, for Artivest. And I saw that as a very, very unique opportunity to step aside and essentially start something fresh. Obviously, Artivest as a business in Germany are very significant, the scale of Argent and larger, but in the UK, they're just starting. So for me, that was a real opportunity to you know, take a great opportunity, obviously with a great responsibility and try and you know, grow that business, not just from development side, but also helping with the investment, the acquisitions, growing the team, um, building the culture. So we've, you know, we've talked about the strength or the, the brands that you, you've worked with up until this point, Luca. Now, Art Invest isn't, isn't known in the, uh, in the UK or isn't spoken about in the, in the same, same terms yet as regards to the Arabs lend leases and the Argents. So when you made that move, how risky, or let's say from your point of view, how risky a move was it leaving a business like Argent and a schemes like King's Cross to someone a little less known? How risky or, or, or how easy was it to make that decision to move? Well, before I answer as to how risky the move was, I think we just have to put it in a bit of a context. Um, at the time of leaving Argent, um, I had my first uh, child, my first daughter, and uh, also that's typically a time when you uh, need to move a house as well. So I was doing both these things and leaving the safety net and, and, and a really good career progression at uh, Argent to uh, join another great firm, uh, but just, as you say, not as well known in the UK and basically without um, a big infrastructure already set up in the UK. So if I was to put it on the scale of uh, 1 to 10, I think it was probably eight uh, and hitting nine. Uh, so yeah, it was a quite quite a risky move. But I think you get to that stage in your career where safe moves can't really offer you uh, what you really need to accelerate again. Because if we were to um, then look at the uh, exponential graph that I plotted just before I left Argent, I actually managed to uh, keep on that trajectory and we'll talk about Canada kind of Water probably in a bit more detail in a moment. But essentially, Canada kind of Water is a project that's about a billion cost. And uh, if you do um, 3.15 to a factor uh, to the power of six, which is the year six, uh, that takes you to about a billion. So, um, so sometimes you do need those, um, you know, risky moves to, to kind of keep the uh, uh, the progression. That's very it's very nice way of putting it. Um, 
So let's go on. Let's get into the detail now of, of who and what are Art Invest and, and a little bit more about what you're involved in. So um, Art Invest, our business that was set up in 2010 in Germany by uh, a guy called Marcus Wiedemann, who is the CEO, and uh, Rudiger for Stengel at the time. And it's the business that was backed by Zek Group. And in the last 12 years of being basically a new business in the German market has grown to probably one of the, if not the largest developer uh, in particular focusing on commercial space, but essentially all sectors in all gateway cities in um, in Germany. And um, essentially the, the team size now is uh, close to 300. There are over 100 projects that um, Artivest have been involved with and, and delivered and over 8 billion assets under management. So um, a very, very successful business. Um, and we're trying to replicate a similar kind of trajectory at, um, uh, in, in London market or in the UK market. Now, at this point, I'd like just to bring in a little bit about some, maybe some of the research that I've heard when I was doing a little bit of digging in prep for, for doing this recording. And I wanted to, I think this is, a, this is a really interesting comment. So I'll read out the comment and then I'll ask, I'll ask you the question after. He is absolutely relentless in his drive and ability to solve problems. I've never met anyone who loves solving problems as much as Luca. He is so determined to always find a solution. Now, that's a nice thing to be said about it, but it got me thinking. You know, this this sounds like the engineer in Luca. You know, this very highly educated engineer, Luca. And I wanted to ask really as to whether there is a downside to that engineering gene inside of you, as to whether the pure, whether you want to try and find that purer solution, does that mean then do you have to sacrifice the pragmatist? And if so, has that ever, has that ever had a downside? Well, I think it all depends on how you're solving a problem and do you really have to be a perfectionist? And I think it goes back to um, a, a point around, you know, when I was an engineer, I was basically working on a particular problem and solving it myself. Uh, being a developer... Uh, I actually heavily rely on, you know, a number of people outside of the organization and people within the organization, but mainly people that we hire externally to solve a problem. So I think that relentless problem solving is has moved on from, you know, basically the, the engineering solution to something. It's actually becoming more of a, you know, a holistic approach to how do we move things forward. So if I, if I tell you a bit about this uh, concept that I, I started thinking heavily about um, when I was at Argent, and I call the concept intellectual leverage, um, and essentially what it means is that as, as, as a human being, regardless of how clever you think you are, you've got very limited um, um, brain capacity. Uh, and for projects that we deliver, you need a lot of brain capacity and a lot of hours to make them happen. So really our job is to think about how can we get the best people around us and how can we leverage their intellect, whether that's an architect or engineer or cost consultant or planning uh, um, person, and how can we use that to solve these problems? And I think, I'm not sure whether the person you spoke to you know, meant that or not, but probably they did. Uh, but I think that problem solving is not, you know, it, it gets to a different level where it's not necessarily perfect, but it's moving things on from, you know, a to B and C and, and onwards, and it's not finding a perfect solution because there, there never is uh, one. The next question I wanted to ask you about is, in, you talk about 
the costs and the numbers associated with development and, and once more sort of tracking back to this sort of exponential sort of curve. Do you feel a greater responsibility or a greater level of stress as those projects have got larger and larger? I think you definitely feel a greater level of responsibility because obviously your responsibility is growing. I think you also mature as your career progresses. So you're able to deal with those problems uh, in, in a, or, or challenges in a, in a very different way. And what seemed like a major problem uh, when you're um, younger and early stages of your career is not even uh, uh, you know, on, on your scale anymore. And probably somebody else is worrying about that. So I think, yes, you're definitely more responsible. But I think the level of pressure is probably similar because you're just operating in a different reference frame. So what w- would have been a, a big, big problem when I was an engineer is actually being dealt with somebody else. goes back to this you know, intellectual leverage uh, position where you're sitting essentially you know, leading the team, uh, essentially being a conductor of a, of a big orchestra, uh, and, and you're just uh, you're just doing the conducting. So um, I hope that gives you gives you the answer. But essentially, I think that the uh, obviously the responsibility grows, um, but the pressure I would say remains the same because you're just operating at a different level. So I, I wanted to get that question out of the way because I wanted to get, I suppose the your internal sort of uh, answer to that because the next the next quote I'm going to mention now gives us the external perspective of this. Um, And I asked this person sort of what they consider to be one of your most prominent traits, and this is what they said. First and foremost, he deeply believes in human relationships and trust. No matter how intense the working environment or how much pressure he is under, he always finds time to ask you genuine questions about real life and find the joy in whatever we're working on. So to the external sort of perspective, they, you know, they don't necessarily see this level of, of stress affect how, how you are working. I wanted to ask, as you have developed as a manager now, as you are taking on more and more responsibility for the, for the teams internally, maybe how you manage that. And if, if you've ever, ever got it wrong in terms of that balance between making sure you don't lose perspective on, on a deal or a project versus real life as this individual said it yeah i think if we go back to the the preface and talk about the first bit i raised about my family and um and obviously you know helping others and, and being good listeners i think that that probably is what what the person is relating to that um ultimately you have to be a very very good listener in order to make sure that the teams and people you're heavily relying on are working with you and uh, are, are locked in with you to, to deliver those very complex projects that have uh, multifaceted risks associated with them, economic risks, political risks, technical risks, and so on. So I, I think this element around being a good listener, kind of having a pulse on your team and, and, and beyond that, to make sure that people you're working with are um, you know, happy, comfortable, and if something is not right, that you're able to step in and help is absolutely fundamental. Uh, both for those individuals involved, because you want people to be happy, content, and have a bit of fun, but also it is quite fundamental for the project itself. Because if you haven't got happy people, I think it becomes a lot more difficult to um, uh, to navigate these complex processes. So, Luca, I asked I asked you a slightly sort of barbed question before about the you know what was the risk argent to art 
So tell us now, with it, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, the last uh, two three years, fresh off the back of, as we said in the intro, one of the largest and fastest sort of planning applications in twenty twenty two, has it paid off? Was the was the risk worth taking? Absolutely, um, and I think it's it's now actually nearly four years. It'll be four years in uh, in January twenty twenty three. So uh, it has definitely paid off. I essentially got exactly what I was kind of hoping for. If I was to leave. Argent, it wasn't going to be for opportunities similar that I had at Argent because that was exactly perfect. But it was actually looking for a different role, uh, one that does require uh, uh, you to, you know, step up, have more responsibility, and take a bit more risk. And that has really paid off. And as you say, probably the uh, the jewel on the crown is uh, being successful with the planning application for Canada Water. Really proud of the achievement that we made as a team. Uh, and also very proud that, you know, we're again working uh, side to side with the uh, British land, but in particular Roger and, and his team. So um, it's been absolutely um, uh, perfect for me. Okay. Well, look, as we, as we start to head into the last sort of chapter now of the, uh, of the episode, I want to pick, uh, pick up the pace a little bit now and ask you a couple more sort of shorter, sharp sort of questions before we need to wrap up. So first question is, what drove you in the earliest chapters and does it still drive you today? Absolutely. And I think, again, it's, it's all linked to what we said at the very beginning. Are you surrounded with the best people? Are you giving your best? And do you have a purpose uh, in what you're doing? And are you listening to people? And I think those aspects are still there. And as long as they're there, you know, that's, that's what keeps me kind of getting out of bed and, and driving me. Okay. Next question. What's been your greatest learnt ability? So not something that came naturally to you, something you need to to hone during this career. Mm, that's a very good question. So I think the the best learned experience is um, something that's linked to this again, this concept of intellectual leverage and being able to let things go and trust others that they can do a very good job at what you know what you ask them to do. I think, again, being an engineer, you keep control over a lot of things because you're responsible for, um, for the work that you do. Being on the development side, you, um, you rely heavily on others. And the more you can rely on others and you can trust them, the more you let people go uh, and grow with you, the more you're going to achieve. Well, look, thank you very much for that. I've got one more question then before we wrap up. And no doubt people listening to this, our audience so far, you know, have, have thoroughly enjoyed this very sort of fast-paced sort of meteoric rise you've, you've been on. So it's an obvious question. What's next? I think it's always uh, difficult to tell, but I think uh, the desire is that we uh, replicate the success of um, that German business had over the last 12 years in Germany, in the UK, and that includes us seeing kind of the water through, growing the team and, uh, and having a bit more fun in the coming years. Obviously, we've got some you know, challenges ahead of us. Uh, we are all um, fully aware of all the economic challenges that we're facing. Uh, but you know, obviously, real estate uh, works on a fairly long cycles, in particular, you know, projects like kind of the water. And um, uh, we think, again, with the right team and uh, right support, uh, we should be able to see that through and, and get more projects like this um, in the future. Well, Luca, thank you very, very much for joining me. I've got to wrap it up, uh, up now, but I have thoroughly enjoyed the, uh, uh, the lesson and the story you've, you've been telling so far, mate. So thank you again for joining me. 
Thank you very much for inviting me.